0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast, bringing you the biggest news from the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Barcelona defender Samuel Umtiti is on the radar of Jose Mourinho as the Manchester United boss looks to strengthen his back line. There's a split in Arsenal's board with two members keen for a return to a British manager. Could Brendan Rodgers or even Sean Dyche be the beneficiaries? Celtic's Moussa Dembele is back amongst the goals and is once again cropping up on the top club's summer shopping lists. Who will come out on top in the battle for the French striker? And a crime against football. Jamie Redknapp's assessment of Chelsea's performance at Manchester City. We ask, do pundits go too far? Okay, guys, we'll start with the big news coming through today that a Barcelona central defender is interesting Manchester United. Duncan, tell us more.
1: Yeah, this is Samuel Umtiti, um the France international centre back at Barcelona, who's been there for the second season and very much established himself in the first team. And he's high up the recruitment list for Manchester United who want a centre-back in the summer um, prioritised by Jose Mourinho to strengthen a defence that he feels is still a handicap um, when they're playing against the top teams, which he has to cover up with, with his midfield and, and, uh, and other tactics. Um, and Titi's in an interesting position because he ha- only has a £60 million euro release clause in his contract, which on current pricing of elite central defenders is low. Um, his salary is also relatively low. He's paid four million euros gross at Barcelona. Barcelona in negotiations with him to improve, uh, extend that contract and obviously increase the release clause to a level where he would be inaccessible to other top European clubs. but they're not close to meeting his financial demands. Um, and TT's representatives are asking for nine million gross, so you know, over a hundred percent increase in his salary. They know they can get that money from Manchester United if um, he decides to move there. So they're playing quite a common game in football, which is, let's see what's available in the marketplace, take it to my employer, um, and see whether he's prepared to match that. Um, Barcelona are kind of in a difficult situation here because they do need to control their finances in that they, they spent extremely heavily on, on Dembele from Dortmund in the summer in a kind of rash um, purchase after they lost Neymar against their, their will. They then handed Lionel Messi 100 million euros just to sign a new contract and gave him the the, the biggest contract in football history of 35 million net. And then on top of that, took Philippe Coutinho in January for an initial 120 million, rising potentially to 160 million. So they've pushed the financial boat out this season and um, they don't want to go that high for a player who's important to them, Um, you could probably say very important to them, but nowhere up their ranking in terms of salary um, at present. So um, I think this one could run on for a little while and uh, Manchester United are attending that very closely to see if they can persuade the player uh, to leave Spain and move to the
2: Premier League. I think the key here, um, as it usually is, with players in the Spanish League and under LFP, which is our equivalent of the PFA, um, is that decision clause of 60 million euros? Because <clears throat> effectively, um, as we know from the, the Neymar transfer, you can walk into the LFP offices with a cheque for 60 million euros or a cheque for 200 million euros and immediately release that player from his contract. Now, if Manchester United are um, deadly serious about this, then that's what they can—that's available to them to do. And of course, in doing so, would prove to the player himself that's how serious they were about signing him. I think MTT is someone who, from what Graham Hunter told us on the transfer window a few weeks ago, is very much valued at Barcelona. Um, and the player himself, I think, is keen to stay, but not, obviously, at the wages he's currently being paid. So this is a game of Russian roulette, really, between the players' representatives in Barcelona. Um, a player of that calibre is obviously going to be interested. We saw that Manchester City paid a similar rescission clause for Americ Laporte um, in the January win- window. And therefore, uh, a, similar, a situation which um, could arise in the summer if there's still stalemate between Barcelona and uh, MTT's agents uh, could see Manchester United uh, walk into those, those offices with uh, that amount of money and say, right, we're going to release you from your contract. Very interesting situation. We know that Manchester United want to um, it's not just stabilise, but really upgrade to that central defence. It's not great. It's been very uh, changeable uh, throughout this whole season. Something that we know Jose Mourinho um, detests is changing his defence for the sake of um, horses for courses. He'd prefer to play with the same back four. I'm sure David Gea as well, would, despite his amazing clean sheet record this season, would probably think that if he had a more stable defence in front of him, could have improved that record. So, uh, yeah, that's a developing one which we'll certainly talk about on Transfer Window over the coming weeks.
1: He also, I mean, Umtiti fits that age range of player that United have recruited since Mourinho's come in, and that they've tended to go for guys uh, younger with a lot of uh, years left in mean, them. He's 24. Um, and as I say, that the pricing is well within their financial terms. The problem, of course, is going to be getting Umtiti to come to the club because, it, in my information, is also his preference. We- to stay at Barcelona, but he will not compromise on, on salary to do that.
0: What is it that MTT will add to this defence if he comes? Um, I know he's a big physical unit. Do you think he'll um, adapt quickly to the Premier League environment, which is slightly different to Spain? I think I think, I think that, that's definitely the case. And and not only that's leadership. MTT is
2: used to being someone who can command in central defence and and influence the players around him because he is a strong character. I think the physical side is perfect um, for him. If you uh, Just looking, I, I was at, at the uh, Brighton Arsenal game uh, last Sunday when Arsenal went down again, obviously, and um, Glenn Murray, a 34-year-old striker, absolutely bullied the Arsenal defence from the start of the game. Um And they didn't like it. And that's what's been happening at Arsenal. Now, if you put a big physical presence like Umtiti at the Manchester United defence, then unlike Smalling, Jones uh, or Lindelof, who currently occupy those spaces, um, that's a very different uh, proposition for uh, opposition attackers.
1: Yeah, he's not not particularly tall. He's just over six foot, um, which would be unusual for... Uh, Jose Mourinho signing central defence but he is powerful and he's a very capable player in one-to-one um, encounters which is exactly the kind of player Mourinho wants you're also looking at a guy who's, who's played top level Spain for two seasons played top level Champions League so you've got a lot of experience already at a young age there and and the idea would be to slot him in beside Eric Bailly who has has demonstrated that you can come from Spanish football at a lower level where he was playing for Villarreal and and was actually relatively inexperienced there and go straight into the Premier League and and establish yourself as the top performer in that defence. It's been to United's great misfortune that he's been injured for a large part of the season and unavailable in the defence. But in in Mourinho's thinking, he's the best centre-back he has and he's looking to get another guy to pair in beside him as as the starting centre-back for next season.
0: Moving on to the game last night between Crystal Palace and Manchester United. It was a pulsating match. Scott McTominay in the centre of midfield. Uh, We'd be delighted to hear that he's going to play for Scotland rather than England going forward, but he actually probably had his worst game in a United shirt. I don't think we can slag him off for that given the performances he's put in
2: prior. Um, And I don't get, personally, the criticism McTominay's received from people like Charlie Nicholas, who said he should have opted for England because it's, he's got a better chance of winning trophies or whatever. Really? When did England last win a trophy? I mean, case okay, Scotland might have never won a trophy, but England won one. So, you know, it was you know, 50 years ago or uh, whatever. So, you know, I, I, I don't get that at all. Um, my understanding was that um, not only did Alex McLeish um, spend two days, one night in Manchester, and had two meetings with McTominay and his, I think his dad, but also Darren Fletcher, um, Scotland captain, former Manchester United captain, also spoke with McTominay uh, and influenced, or at least gave his opinion on what decision he should make. So um, I think we're very lucky as as Scotland fans uh, that McTominay has chosen uh, to to play for Scotland, and I think you know he's only going to get better. And under Jose Mourinho, uh, he's already improved uh, immensely and will continue to improve.
1: Yeah, I think the odd part of Charlie Nicholas's criticism was that he was suggesting that McTominay only wanted to play for Scotland to improve his CV, and that he didn't have, he wasn't doing it for the right reasons, i.e., because he wanted to play for Scotland from a, a the point of view of identity and and the passion to play for the team. I think that's ignoring that before McTominay broke into the Manchester United team, before most people in, in football had had heard of him. Um, he uh, he was already telling uh, Manchester United's uh, website in an interview that he felt more Scottish than English, and um, you know his Scottish father has those connections. There had had not had decided not to play for England earlier on in, in his career. So I don't think there's. I think we should be welcoming someone who who has close Scottish heritage. Who wants to play for our national team rather than than, than questioning that interest? And, and you're right, Ian. There was a there was a lot of work done to persuade him by Alex McLeish um, and also by Josie Mourinho. Josie Mourinho's advice to the player was to to choose Scotland over England. Um,
2: and I think Alex. You, you mean also you mean you mean Josie Mc Duncan?
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I listened to Gary Neville and Joey Barton's podcast. He was absolutely fascinating about the issue of how England affected players. And he was saying that Fergie used to hate sending players away to England because he would send them away in really strong physical and mental shape. And they'd, they'd come back, and I think the quote was, they would come back broken by the experience. And it made me wonder if Jose maybe feels similar.
1: Well, that, that's a very interesting point because we know that Jose has complained on a couple of occasions this season about players going on England duty and coming back injured. So Phil Jones being the cardinal example. You remember that friendly match that um, Gareth Southgate uh, put him on the field uh, with, I think it was six painkilling injections before the match to play in a friendly. And uh, Mourinho was apoplectic about that for obvious reasons. So the mental side's uh, a separate thing, and you can understand why playing for um, England can be particularly difficult because um, of the sense of expectation involved with the national team and and the results that ensue and what happens after tournaments. But I think the physical side is a real issue and I don't think Mourinho is the only manager in the Premier League who is concerned about the way uh, Southgate is using players on international duty and not respecting the fitness regimes they have at clubs and um, injuries are occurring when they come back and into I mean, it. It's always a difficult transition from national team to, to club duty, but there seems to be a particular problem with England duty at present.
2: I would like to think as well, um, guys, that um, given that Jose Mourinho did his UEFA Pro licence with the SFA in Largs alongside Paul Lambert, that he maybe has a little bit of sneaky affiliation to Scotland which he doesn't have to England uh, but also I've got n- absolutely no doubt they all have spoken to Sir Alex Ferguson about sending players on England duty and then how the state they came back in so no surprise to learn that, that Josie has, has spoken to McTominay and said look uh, better play for the boys in, in, in the blue because uh, they're good lads
0: Very briefly guys before we move on just touch on Alexis Sanchez Duncan you first what do you make of his performances so far?
1: I think he's uh, he's not performed at expectation yet. Um, I don't think he he had a great game last night. I think he did. Um, I think he did do well against Chelsea when the team turned around their performance. Um, he's what's been noticeable to me is when he gets opportunities to score, when he has time to think about it, he's taking time to think about it instead of hitting shots straight away, and that is always a sign of a player who is trying to prove himself. Um, they're not, you know, Alexis Sanchez we know is at his best when he's an instinctive player, he, when he, you know, he plays off, off, the, off the cuff, um, and that, that's what catches out the opposition. He seems to be thinking too hard, um, particularly when he gets the ball in front of goal, but he's a player of such quality you would expect that to turn around once he's, once he's had time to bed himself in.
2: I do. agree with you, Duncan. I think um, with Alexis, there was so much talk, so much um, hyperbole, so much uh, almost um, invasion, if you like, about the the terms of the deal and the machinations and twists and turns that took him to United over City that it may well have just had a, a bit of effect on him psychologically. He doesn't look like the kind of more relaxed, comfortable player that he was. Arsenal, where you know he obviously established a particular role for himself and, and was able to um excel in that role, I think he's adapting. Um, but I think as well in his mind, I, I think the phrase trying too hard is, is probably correct. Uh, and I I doubt, although obviously it could be proven wrong over the next couple of weeks when Manchester United have got some big games, that we may not see the best of Sanchez in the Manchester United shirt until next season when he's. More bedded in, had a pre-season with his teammates, and also as well, I do think, and Jose Mourinho said this himself, that this current Manchester United team stroke squad lack balance, and therefore a player as creative and skillful as Sanchez will struggle to play in a team which lacks balance because he needs the rest of the team to feed off him, to develop to fair possession to him at the right times. So if there's a lack of balance throughout the team, then someone like Sanchez is bound to suffer.
1: I think yeah, just two quick things here one is that mourinho often says that he doesn't like recruiting players in the january window the reason he doesn't like doing that is it's hard to integrate them midway through the season and i think it's particularly hard to integrate them into his system because it is very tactically complex and fluid and he does a lot of work in pre-season to set the players up um, to get them accustomed to the way his teams play, and obviously Sanchez hasn't had that. He's also coming in the middle of a, of the you know the Paul Pogba. Where does he play? What which does he have defensive duties? Um, what does his agent want wanted to do? Um, so he's coming in the middle of that, which isn't the, the most helpful time to come into any team. And just to just want to point out that in the last few games, Manchester United have, have switched their system um, of. Uh, three in midfield, Matic holding, uh, Pogba on the left and McTominay on the right. And say so the transfer window when we were discussing uh, Pogba's complaints about the system, we pointed out that that was a system that um, Mourinho might implement in the next few weeks to try and solve the problem and that's exactly what he's done.
0: Okay, moving on to Arsene Wenger, a man that we discussed in detail last week with regards to his position at Arsenal. <coughs> Ian, you got a story that there might be a split in the Arsenal board over his replacement. What's going on
2: there? True, Johnny. Um, yeah, just uh, chatting to lots of contacts and people connected to Arsenal um, at a high level. and um, There's certainly a, a disagreement uh, amongst the members of the Arsenal Football Club board uh, where uh, there's about, a, I'd say it's not quite 50-50, but certainly uh, Stan that the owner, um, is someone who he's not yet willing to pull the trigger on Wenger. He's been a staunch supporter of Wenger. Um, whether that's um, because of the uh, respect he has for the manager or whether it's because he's a manager who is better the devil you know than the, the one you don't, he, he certainly makes money for Arsenal in terms of doesn't spend a lot of money on transfers. And In fact, I think they were 15th in the net transfer spend over the last two windows. Um, so one of the... In fact, I think they made a net profit of around £9 million, which is incredible for a club that size who also broke the transfer record bringing pierre uh, and Rick Obama Aubameyang in as well, but obviously sold Sanchez. So, Kronk is still there behind Wenger for the moment, and I stress for the moment. I think there are other members of the board who are better connected because they don't live in America all the time and see every game. <clears throat> and they're connected to the fans, they're connected to their corporate sponsors, to their... Um, the people in uh, who pay very, very high uh, amounts of money for boxes at Arsenal. And there is a discontent that, that is, I think, fairly widespread. Uh, I saw a fan poll um, of the Arsenal Sports Association just published this morning where 88% want them out. Uh, as I said, I was at um, the Amex Stadium for Brighton versus Arsenal last Sunday and I actually felt sad when I heard the Arsenal away support shout, Wenger must go. I felt sad because having known Wenger well for the best part of two decades, he's such a likeable, intelligent, uh, respectable and uh, charismatic man and everything that he achieved, uh, albeit a decade ago, is now you know, disintegrating before his eyes in terms of his legacy and, and, and how, how people will see him. So I felt sad that I was present when you know, those Arsenal fans were chanting Wenger out. Uh, for some reason, and this is purely a personal, I do believe Wenger should go, and I've been saying this for four or five years now. But just on a personal level, I felt sad for him. Now, um, in terms of the board, there is a a sort of push uh, by two members of the board to create a, a new identity for the club, and that identity would be an English or British identity, given that the last 22 years have been based around uh, the manager who's French and, of course, a raft of France players who've come and, and gone at Arsenal. But certainly, Arsenal have been the most um, proliferate in terms of um, their buying of foreign players in the Premier League over the past two decades under Wenger. Um, indeed, I think there was a landmark um, under Wenger when uh, not a single British player uh, was fielded in, a, in an Arsenal starting eleven. That was some years ago, obviously, but that's that's normal. Jack Wilshere now is, you know, Callum Chambers both started um, on Sunday, but they, that's you know the, the exception to the rule, as it were. Now that would mean again, um, as we spoke about last week, that Brendan Rodgers is certainly a candidate. Um, Not an Irish, yes, but you know has worked in England under Swansea and Liverpool, <clears throat> and someone who is young, dynamic, which again is the photo fit of who the new coach should be. Someone who can relate to the younger players and a you know better than a sixty-eight year old. Um, but what are the surprise names, if you? feel like he's not maybe an Arsenal manager um, in waiting would be Sean Dyche, who's certainly admired by members of the Arsenal board. Obviously, his work at Burnley has been exceptional. And he's someone who is probably the next English manager to go to a top six club um, if he gets the opportunity. So uh, that would be very, very interesting. But you know the idea of Rodgers or Dyche coming in to re-establish a British identity given a budget which they um, would have had you know, more money, obviously, than they've ever had to spend either of at their at the, at the respective clubs, um, but also to build a, an English or British spine to that team. Clearly, we know that they need uh, a dominant centre-half, a dominant central midfielder, and a dominant striker. Um, and Peter Cech has been you know, more errors than he would like over the last sort of four or five months, so maybe even an English goalkeeper as well. Um, that's what I heard, that's what I'm hearing. So I think it'd be very interesting. The other side of the board uh, are in favour of a big name. Luis Enrique has been mentioned, obviously. Carlo Ancelotti, Yogi Liu, um are all candidates for the other half of the board. But with that, you get the gamble of a £40 million contract over, say, four, four years. If it doesn't work, you have, to, mm-hmm. you have to sack him and it costs you a lot of money. And as we know, Stan Cronkert is both risk-averse and money-wastage-averse. So I think... With Kronka and his son Josh, who's also on the, the, the board, there is a possibility we'll see a distinct sea change in Arsenal's policy, and that would be to employ a young British manager as the successor to Arsene Wenger.
1: Yeah, look, first of all, I'd agree with you, Ian. Um, it's very sad to see um, Arsene Wenger placed in this situation. You know, one of the most intelligent, dignified, and humane individuals I think we've had the. You know the the pleasure to work with and in, in covering football in, in England, but um, unfortunately, it has come to this situation, and, and and part of that is down to his refusal to leave when the opportunity was presented to itself. I also, think he was he was relatively unfortunate if you in what happened on Sunday in that Arsenal started that game quite well. Manchester City weren't anywhere near their superb best. Um, Obama Young had a good opportunity to score, which he spurned. And then uh, your favourite centre-back, Mustafi, had decided to hand the, the opening goal to Manchester City in one of the worst pieces of defending we've seen in the, in the English game this year. Obviously, there are all the underlying problems with the Arsenal and uh, lack of tactical preparation. Um, lack of an ability to change matches, the selection of players, the fact he's got those kind of individuals in the squad, all of those things you can attribute to Wenger, but it wasn't his worst day, but it's ended up being, Yeah, essentially looks like the, the real beginning of the end for him. In terms of a replacement, I, I'm fascinated by this idea that Josh Cronké, who, who's now you know, decided to get himself more directly involved in the hands-on running of Arsenal, wants a kind of to go for the flavour of the month British manager I've seen that approach before with um, American owners of Premier League football clubs who are principally interested in those clubs for financial reasons um, that's Fenway Sports Group um, I got a different view to you on Brendan Rogers' appointment at Liverpool I think that that appointment was a mistake from off. I don't think he did a good job there. I think the reason they got so close to winning the Premier League was because they had the best player in the division that season, um, scoring goals at a ridiculous rate because he wanted to prove um, to Barcelona that they should come back and buy him again. Um, They they did that in a season where they were able to focus on the Premier League and they kind of ran in a wave of of euphoria into, into that second part of the season where they got themselves an opportunity to win the league and then they, they essentially threw it away with a very bad um, approach uh, against Chelsea, an understrength Chelsea team, which um, where Rodgers was, was tactically out, outdone by a guy he should not have known very well because he worked under him for a long time and, uh, in inverted commas, borrowed a lot of his, his methods. I don't think going for Sean Dyche is the answer for Arsenal unless they perceive themselves as being a club battling... For Europa League positions, um, I don't think he will play the expansive football that they're looking for. I think he's done a great job at Burnley, but he's a percentages manager. Maybe I'm doing him an injustice. Maybe if he moves with to a club with better resources, he can change his his tactical approach and 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 play a more expansive game. But for me, that would be a a huge um, risk for Arsenal to take, and I think. What they, they do need at this moment is one of the is a is a caliber of manager who's able to take on a huge rebuilding project. It's very similar to what happened at Manchester United when Sir Alex Ferguson left. Um, Manchester United made the mistake of appointing someone who had not um, any experience of taking on a job of that order, no experience of dealing with players of that dimension, um, no experience of dealing with media exposure in that dimension and they're still paying the cost of it uh, what, five years later Um, and I think that would be exactly the the risk that Arsenal take if they don't go for
2: someone who has proven themselves at the top level of the game by winning the title. You say that Duncan but then Manchester tried to correct a mistake with exactly the description of of man that you just um, said, i.e. Louis van Gaal who managed Barcelona um, yep. and that was a, that was a disaster as well. So they tried both sides of that coin. Neither worked for different reasons. Well, they
1: they picked they picked the wrong one with Van Hal, didn't they? They picked a guy whose CV was built off successes um, fifteen years prior to
2: their appointment. Yeah. So if true, you look, true. if you look
1: at Van Hal's record, it was all everything he did which was sensational in in the European game was done at the very beginning of his career and then it was this kind of long, slow word. Um, decline, um, and you know they, they essentially did it off the back of him beating Spain in the in the World Cup with one you know clever tactical setup. Um, so, yeah, they, obviously you appoint a big name, experienced manager, and no guarantees. You've got to choose the right one. But I don't so, think I that, don't that, think <clears throat> get an experienced manager. I think that job
2: is so hard for an inexperienced manager coming into you just I, back the odds against yourself so highly. I agree with you on that, but the, and there is. There is no guarantees that and the gamble on a the point I made before is that the gamble is either a cheap hire and a cheap mm. fire manager like Brendan Rogers or Sean Dice. If they if they don't perform and it doesn't go well, they can dispose of them in the way that David Moyes was disposed of, but on a much cheaper basis than the say forty million, uh, fifty million pound contract that they'd have to give to someone like Luis Enrique. Um however the other word that I hear, I've heard repeatedly um, about the um, current Arsenal team and manager is discipline, and that is in, in this case the opposite: indiscipline. And anyone who's watched Arsenal's four defeats um, in the last two weeks, three weeks, um, certainly again at the Amex Stadium on, on Sunday afternoon, no discipline whatsoever in that in that uh, team. But the only player who looked like he really cared was Jack Wilshire, Um and he can't do all that on, on, on his own. Uh, and players like Mesut Ozil who's just signed a 350 grand a week contract just couldn't care less Mkhitaryan who just came to the club thinking he'd be trying to prove himself couldn't care less Aubameyang ran about quite a bit and had obviously scored and had a couple of chances but was far from convincing and as I said before an Arsenal back four who were completely bullied by a 34-year-old striker who in actual fact is probably in the form of his life 14 goals in the Premier League so um it's just, to me, it looks like they want someone... And, of course, Dyche does have a reputation for being a bit of a sergeant major. Um, if it's the right thing or not, well, we're not, we're, who can say at this moment in time he's not there, but that would be one of the attributes that Daish would bring, which Wenger has, seems to have lost in terms of um, the way the, the, the players are performing on the pitch.
1: Yeah, I think <laughs> Martin Keown had some interesting testimony about um, Wenger... Um, I think at the weekend um, was talking about how he would now he felt Wenger would never have signed a player like himself and has never signed a player like himself and that that back four that was the cornerstone of of their of his title winning teams and on top of that said that his his management was very much a kind of when things are going well do the same thing a placid kind of repeat training uh, repeat your uh, preparation for matches repeat and expect the performance to repeat on the field. And, and that kind of rings true in the, in this, um, in the performances and, you know, the decline of Arsenal over the years and in their failure to adapt to not having the best squad and their failure to adapt to opponents who, who pick out specific tactical strategies and, and can change tactical strategy in, in the game to beat them. So, um, those things, I think, ring true and, and are, are fundamental reasons why, unfortunately, Arson is, has, has gone past his sell-by date as, as Arsenal
2: manager. Very quick anecdote on that, on that same theme. <clears throat> um, Tony Adams, uh, when he was Arsenal captain at White Hart Lane, uh, dreadful first half, they were gold down, went into the dressing room. Um, it was Freddie Lundberg's first North London derby put Lundberg up against the dressing room wall with by his throat and said If you ever, ever play a forty five minutes of football like that again where well, you don't care about this club and this badge and this shirt that you wear, I will kill you. And Lundberg went out and played second half entirely differently. Arsenal won the game. Now you tell me if you can see a player in that Arsenal team who would do what Tony Adams did. No, there's none. Exactly. There's nothing. There's nothing of the old Arsenal, and I've heard Arsenal fans say, "This is as, this is as bad as it was in the 1980s. No direction, no purpose. Players who don't seem to care. No trophies. No no no. Not even any sort of enthusiasm in the team. And at public like Arsenal, that has to be arrested, and it has to be arrested quickly. And in fact, you know, someone suggested give Wenger you know the last nine games to say his retirement and his farewells. Why not? Yeah, look, I, I, know
1: play- I know there are players in that dressing room who are looking for leadership. And I know there are, it's often players will look um, to the manager for excuses when things are going wrong. But I think there are players in that dressing room who've worked under managers who prepare them for matches, who prepare them for opponents. And they move to Arsenal and they shoot their head when they, when they went into team talks because they didn't get that preparation anymore and they missed it and it's never it's never been provided for them at arsenal and they they find they find it impossible to play at top level under that kind of management system and that's you know that's the way most most coaches manage these days and more and more players expect that kind of leadership and guidance Um, and if they don't get it then results don't appear
0: Okay, with Brendan Rogers, one of the people that Arsenal are looking at, um, there's also more interest in Celtic with regards to their striker, Musa Dembele, who's one of the most sought after players over the last two transfer windows. He's gone through a bit of a fallow period with regard to his form, but he's now banging in the goals once again. And Ian, you feel that come the summer, he might be a player that is moving on to the Premier League?
2: Yes, uh, Johnny. uh... March is a time when um, <clears throat> Premier League clubs, well, most clubs actually, start uh, to begin their uh, recruitment strategy for the summer window. Um, obviously, the January window's come and gone. February's a very busy month with games. So um, the business of transfers starts again in March uh, and then lists are prepared. Targets are uh, identified. And it's certainly the case that Moussa Dembele's upturned form, the fact he's playing again, obviously, um, has, uh, let's just say, ignited reignited the interest of uh, clubs, uh, certainly Chelsea and Arsenal um, have been taking note and sent scouts to watch him since he's been playing again. Um, clubs lower down in the Premier League, uh, <clears throat> West Ham United um, are certainly, they were interested in the January window, but felt that Celtic's price was too high for a player who was out of form. Um, and In fact, Celtic received only the one bid, and that was from Brighton, um, who then made no more bids for the player. So uh, I would expect that Dembele will be very much um, in the market. and I think he, his agents are certainly marketing him again aggressively to English clubs. Um, ultimately, Mr Dembele sees himself as a Premier League striker, But um, as we've spoken about many times in transfer window, he wants to be the number one striker and wants to play. He wants his career to flourish, not to be in some way mothballed by being the number four at Chelsea or the number three striker at Arsenal. He wants to be the number one striker. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that plays out because I think Dembele himself, in his own mind, felt like he would be a Premier League player already uh, after um, moving in the January window. That didn't happen Credit to the the player; he's got his head together, back in the team, scoring goals, and uh, he's got the interest happening for him as well. So I think we will definitely see bids um, which will more closely match Celtic's valuation of around twenty five million pounds from Mr. Dembélé in the summer window.
1: Yeah, look, I think Dembélé's representatives explored the market um, very carefully in January. Um, as you say, the, the, the one bid that came in was from Brighton. Um, they decided against that move. Uh, they were aware that Celtic wanted to sell him at that time if they got their asking price Celtic would sell and Celtic were marketing him discreetly to other clubs. Uh, he, They have been thinking very carefully about where he goes next a while and they were always skeptical about a January move for you know similar to where we're talking about the problems Alexis Sanchez has had far more experienced player moving from Arsenal to Manchester United in the January window they, they knew a January move came with the risk that you go into the into a team if you'd chosen Brighton, they would' have been ex- expected to score the goals to keep them up if he'd had a bad start, then his career takes a, a, a significant setback so they were skeptical about that and were prepared to wait. I think actually, if they were to get an offer from a Chelsea or an Arsenal, where they had the confidence that the coach valued Dembele as a as a player to develop, and they liked that coach, and they they felt that um, he was someone who could. Improve the player, and they get significant game time. They're not; they wouldn't expect him to be a starter at Chelsea or Arsenal. They'd be ready to, to be you know the cup striker or, or the off the bench striker. They'd, they'd also look very seriously at that move. But you're right. Um, you know, Celtic have signaled their desire to sell him. They want to cash in when they can, and the player is ready to move when the right opportunity comes from him. So we'd expect him to move in the
2: summer. Of course, the problem that with Chelsea and Arsenal, Duncan, is that. You'd have to second guess who the next coach is going to be at both those clubs before you could make a decision. So, Dembele's um, progress as a player is going to be held up by the soap opera, which will be um, Wenger out, Conte out, who in, who in. So, that will be another interesting one in terms of, you know, if it's a coach who obviously comes in and sees Dembele's potential. <clears throat> and there's no doubt in my mind that is a confident individual for, for a player relatively young and, you know, relatively untried, if you like, at top-level football. And he believes that if he's given a chance in a, in a first team, no matter where it is, if it's top six or if it's middle six, then that he will establish himself as the number one striker. So um, it's it's a very intriguing situation with Dembele in, in that sense because um, most players will simply look at the money on offer at one of those big clubs which will treble, their, maybe quadruple their salary and say, yep, yeah, that's me, I'll just go buy my Bentley or my Ferrari now. And Dembele's different. He wants to play football. He wants his career to progress. He wants to become the best he possibly can be. So, um, as I said, it will be an interesting one to see where he does end up. But I do think he'll leave Celtic in the summer. Yeah, that's right. Both him and the people around him are
1: playing the long game here. And I I think they've been encouraged by the the response they've got from scouts, from from top Premier League clubs and top clubs (laughs) across Europe because Dembélé's high on everyone's list because of his age and because his physical attributes his ability to score goals at Champions League level that's the kind of thing that ticks the boxes for scouts at all of the top clubs so they keep an eye on him and and those scouts are encouraging the player and encouraging his representatives and saying you know we are interested in you but it's not the time quite yet and and also that what you mentioned about um, Conte and Wenger Possibly leaving that—that's also in their thinking when they're looking for the right managers. You know, if they, do we go to Chelsea or Arsenal in January, even if they want us? Because there's no guarantee that that coach will still be there. And in Chelsea's case, highly unlikely that coach would still be there in six months' time. So they are playing the game very carefully. Unusually, there's, no,
2: there's an obvious um, <clears throat> uh, sort of caveat here as well, given Stan Kroenke's. Um, Uh, attitude towards fiscal responsibility Uh, the Brodge and Musa could share the same cap to the Emirates
0: (laughs) One of the big talking points of the weekend guys was uh, Chelsea's performance in Manchester and the defensive nature of that display with Jamie Redknapp the pundit saying on Sky that he felt was a crime against football Duncan, are football pundits in this country going a little far at times now? We've seen a lot of controversy over various comments and managers getting their nose out of joint around them.
1: Well, two things. One, I think he, uh, Jamie Redknapp is completely unfair on Ant- Antonio Conte and Chelsea and calling that a crime against football on Sunday. Um, look, we all want to watch super entertaining football matches, but it It's not the obligation of the manager of a football club to entertain neutral supporters and pundits. His job is to win matches, get results, um, finish. In in Conte's case, his job is to qualify Chelsea for the Champions League next season. And Conte was very explicit in his response to that. He was asked about it in the press conference. And he, he said, you know, you've got to accept criticisms when you lose a game. But I think that this is what his his response was. I think that the pundit has to use the head to understand when you speak about tactics because I think that you must have knowledge to speak about tactics and not only to speak in a stupid way. And I think he's completely justified in saying that because yes, Manchester City had most of the ball in that game. Yes, they they had a record number of passes in that game. But look back at that game. How many clear-cut chances did Manchester City actually make? They spent a lot of time passing around in Chelsea's um, half of the field without actually threatening Thibaut Courtois. They got their goal because Marcus Christensen made another um, completely unnecessary mistake in his own penalty box and handed the ball over to high-quality players near his own goal. Chelsea also created a very good opportunity on the break, which was obviously Conte's tactic, was to play on the counter-attack or to, to score goal from a set piece and Victor Moses managed to, to not even hit the target when he was 12 yards out from the goalkeeper and unmarked. So, OK, you can say, well, maybe Manchester City would have scored later in the game and they'd have got their win anyway. But from my perspective, Conte's tactics were relatively effective, given that his players didn't implement, they weren't at their, at their best on a technical level in the day. But they did stop Manchester City from from rolling them over, and I, as he also said, I, he just listened to the same pundits taking us from Wenger to pieces for losing three 0 to Manchester City twice in a week. Um, so you know, where where what does he do as a manager if he doesn't entertain? If he doesn't win the game, is is that the, uh, is he is he guaranteed to be criticised by the pundits? It's it, for me. It seems that pundits are now more interested in the entertainment side of football than they are in the actual practice of the game and what, what some of them, like not all of them, but what some of them had to do when they were players, which is go out on the pitch and get a result, not go out on the pitch and entertain the, you know, the 90% of neutral
2: fans watching it on TV. It is a bit lazy to <clears throat> criticise football managers and indeed football teams, on the basis of entertainment value. Um, I think what punditry, certainly in the Premier League, um, has achieved since the era of um, intelligent ex-pros like Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, coming into the commentary boxes, coming into the TV studios, has achieved a higher level of tactical analysis, which Duncan has just explained. A tactical analysis of Antonio Conte's game plan uh, against Manchester City showed that actually it was qu- quite effective if it weren 't for one mistake by Christensen, then perhaps there would have been a draw and conte 's obligation both to his club and to himself is to achieve results for his for himself for his for his employer it 's not to entertain Manchester City fans or even Chelsea fans for that matter. Maybe in different circumstances that is what happens. but I think people are a bit too simplistic when they say things like crime against football. There, there's no such thing as a crime against football unless you're talking about a dreadful challenge which has mm. had a dreadful you no know, has had a you know a medical um negative effect on another player or um or indeed the behaviour of fans being racist or um violent or whatever. Maybe just maybe you could stretch crime and football into that sentence about that, but not about a way a manager sets up a football team. Um and so the, the, the punditry um, argument, I think, uh, is interesting only because we now have an elevated intelligence and analysis of our game uh, in the Premier League, certainly, um, over the last five years, which has set the bar. And um, so when people criticise the pundits for being over the top, I think that's a little bit rich because it's exactly those kind of comments that spark a debate both in pubs, in the stands, and of course on social media, where most of this has played out. So it's a very different environment now than it was 15, 20 years ago, when you know, the, the sum total of most pundits' contribution to their um, viewing of a game would be, well, it was a good cross and the boy swept it away well, didn't he? And do we really want to go back to those dark days? No, we don't. You know, we, want to, we want to be able to be engaged by people, who have played the game and analysed the game at a higher level than perhaps most fans have done before. And as Liam Rossini said in his Guardian column uh, a week ago, that Gary Neville educates fans and indeed young players because he doesn't just talk about what he sees uh, and redescribes it. As I said in the example of what well, was a great cross and the boy put the ball in the back of the net and that was very good. Actually, he talks about why that happened, what might have been different, what could have happened if if a player or certain players had played differently or if a manager set his team up differently? How that could have been avoided? How they could have affected the game in a different way? Now, from, to me, as someone who's worked in journalism for 20 years and now watching football as a consultant, that's that's gold for me. I pre- much prefer my pundits to be like that than to say to be bland and uh, you know just very anodyne and, and say the first thing that comes into their head. So I, I, I think we're definitely... Um, if we're going to criticise people for being intelligent and uh, being tactically astute, then uh, then we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, look, I think I think what you identify about Gary Neville's spot on. That that kind of um, in depth analysis of where a players done well or a players done wrong, the sort of technique of of playing football. Um, actual you know how you control the ball where you move the ball how you how you move an opponent around in the field is is fantastic and, and really elevated um the quality of uh, of commentary and of english football i think gary neville is a good example i think jamie carragher is good too um i really like don hutchinson i think he's a, an excellent in match analysis um, does a lot of work for premier league tv but I think also is interesting is I, mean, I listened to Gary Neville this week talking about um, criticism of him and Carragher and of punditry in general by the managers and saying I, I don't you know paraphrasing I don't understand why they listen to us we're only pundits. Um, actually, they, what they say is very important because it sets the agenda. They are they are because they're providing um, useful knowledge to the fans and they're educating the supporters then when they have opinions about as you know Jamie Redknapp has had that it's a crime against football those opinions get captured by the fans and they become part of the, the discussion and the agenda and managers are complaining about that because they feel that a lot or a significant amount of that criticism is unfair and doesn't have a proper as you know as Conte has been pointing out a proper understanding of the game i think managers are quite happy to hear in depth tactical analysis of the type that Gary Neville is providing, but when it's a case of, you shouldn't play the game that way because it's not entertaining for the fans, that's when they, they get upset, and they and they feel it puts pressure on them, because it does. It does put pressure on them, it If you're, for example, the manager of Manchester United, where you have a board comprised of people who've never worked in football before they uh, took ownership of Manchester United, then you've got a problem because uh, some of that board will listen to what pundits are saying and if they describe that football as being um, substandard and not not suitable for manchester united that will affect your your place of employment and that applies to other managers in the premier league too so i don't think this conflict is going to go away anytime soon because partly because the pundits are clearly um, under pressure from broadcasters such as sky who pay a huge amount for the rights for games and are seeing uh, their, their viewership decline, um, so are under commercial pressure themselves. It works for Sky, it works for BT Sport to have their commentators saying controversial things because it draws traffic to them. Um, and I can, under, I can see why the pundits are being asked to be more outspoken, so you will get, therefore, more conflict with managers down the line because of this.
2: Uh, <clears throat> in Gary Neville's case, I don't think he's ever been less controversial or more controversial, I think he's always pretty much shot from the hip. But uh, a little bit of insight for for our listeners. Um, Ten years ago, uh, in press rooms, Duncan and I will attest that um, we would wait for managers uh, to attend the after-match press conference, and it was our job to ask and try to elicit the best possible quotes, because the back page depended on getting good quotes out of those people um, in order to obviously create the story or, or indeed describe the story that had played out on the pitch. Um, I've seen press boxes now in the last five years where it's just as important to listen to the after-match analysis by people at Gary Neville because you will get a headline out of him saying things like spineless, embarrassing. Uh, talking about Arsenal in the League Cup final um, or indeed crime against football uh, in Jimmy Redknapp's case in the Man City Chelsea game last Sunday. So it's, it's, th- th- there has been a, a change in the dynamic uh in the press room if you like in the media room after games where it's almost as important to to listen to the tv pundits as it is to the managers whether or not that's good for the game I'm not sure but it certainly um as Duncan described it drives the agenda it drives the social media agenda as well which has clearly become such an important part and such an integral part of how we assess football now it's, it's soap opera isn't it Ian it's yeah. The coverage
1: is very much so. You see um, footballers and managers moving from the back page of the newspapers to the front page of the newspapers and a lot of the coverage of the game being driven around personalities rather than actions on the football field. And, and, and that's the interesting conflict because you've got this tactical discussion which, which supporters actually want to hear. They want to, I, I have always thought the majority of supporters want to know why football games are won and lost and they're fascinated by tactics. But it's played off against this personality and did he do the right thing? Has, has, he, has he got a conflict with him? Does the manager, is the manager fighting with this player? And, and that kind of drifts it away from tactics and, the, and, and some of the, some of the, the, the finer details of, of why one team wins on the pitch rather
0: than the other. Okay, from one hot topic to another, we've gone from pundits and now we're going on to VAR. Ian, this has been a real stickler for a lot of people in the way it's been used already in the English game and we're now heading towards a World Cup where it's going to be used in the summer. What's your take on the events of the last few days uh, given that FIFA have given... VAR, the OK, and UEFA have come out and said that it won't be used in their premier competition. Seems like there's still going to be a lot of room for controversy within this story.
2: And yeah, you, you're right. That um, I mean, what's happened uh, of, of great interest, uh, certainly to people who, you know, uh, have a view on the use of technology in football in the last week, is that um, there's been a direct conflict of opinion uh between the two governing bodies or the two most important and influential governing bodies in football. And that's because UEFA have already said that VAR is not yet at the standard where they would trust it to be employed for their um blue ribbon events uh in, in terms of the Champions League um next season. Whereas you would say ironically or you know contentiously, FIFA I uh, have approved it to be used in this summer's World Cup in Russia. And certainly what we've seen through its testing in the FA Cup and the League Cup in, uh, in the English game is that it, the, it, it does invite uh, very um, contrasting and, in fact, opposite uh, views with regards to its effectiveness and its worth. Um, is it worth it to stop a game f- for up to six minutes to review decisions which can be made on the field um is it worth it because decisions that are read by var they're subsequently shown to be to be wrong anyway uh, in the case of a penalty uh, for liverpool uh, two weeks ago so um this this story this argument will run and run um until var is um streamlined upgraded and developed to the point where it can um let's just say, effectively influence decisions on the pitch but not do so by long delays. Uh, I think the use of screens inside the stadium, because a lot of the uh, arguments and um, uh, derision almost has been that the fans who've paid to watch the game inside the stadium are kept in the dark because unlike sports like tennis or rugby, when there's a, uh, a decision deferred to a fourth official um, via video, then the fans are included because they know, they can see what's happening. You'll have to look at cricket uh, reviews and you see the umpire, uh, the fourth umpire, will effectively talk through the whole phase of play uh, and then give a decision. Now, <clears throat> until the, you know, there's that kind of drama in the stadium, fans are not going to be happy. Um, players are not going to be happy either because they don't know what's going on. Uh, and also, uh, as I said, the main problem right now is that um, the delays caused in the game are the ones where which people who didn't want it introduced have, were arguing before its introduction, well, this is why we don't want it, because it's going to stop what is a fluid game um, and it's going to cause problems for that way. And you end up getting six, seven minutes of added time just for VR decisions, which, again, a lot of players, a lot of fans don't like.
1: Yeah, look, I wrote a column about this last week and um, I think... I think the fundamental problem with VAR is it seems such a sensible solution. And I think it seems such a sensible solution because we are all VARs every time we watch a game on television. We all watch, look at the replays. We all re-referee the decisions. The pundits re-referee them at half time. The pundits re-referee them again at full time. Sometimes they come to the same conclusion or about an incident, but not always. But we're in the habit of of picking up on referees errors and saying oh that wasn't offside or that should have been a penalty so it seemed an obvious solution to the game's problems but clearly you can see from this experimental period although FIFA disagree and want to take it and use it in the World Cup clearly it's not a panacea it comes with significant costs not just financial costs in implementing the system but in delaying matches moves um, an onus, a responsibility to make decisions away from the referee on the field. It's very clear from watching the the games we've seen in England that the referees, when they're in doubt, go to the VAR to ask for a second opinion on a decision um, which normally they would have given themselves. And so much of football's rules are subjective. Um, Even things like offside are, to an extent, subjective because when you talk about interference with play that's a subjective decision over whether whether an attacker has has, um, affected a defender's movement and even the the var operator doing offside has to make a decision on exactly when the ball was um, released and where he draws the offside line um, according to the last defender and they're marginal things but they're still subjective and they take time And they're problematic. And I think, personally, the reason VAR came in is because Sepp Blatter had stood against it for such a long time and he was the the big, bad bogeyman of FIFA. Um, There was a campaign to get him out and it was a very populist move for his successors to say, We're going to do away with um, Blatter's insistence that the referee remains the final arbiter of all decisions on the field, and we do not re-referee games because that will mess around with the intrinsic match and sport that we love. Um, And we're not going to bring VAR in. And his successors have said, yeah, we are going to bring it in because this is popular. People want to see it. It's telling for me that um, the one survey I've seen of a league... um, which has had VAR this season, asking the players whether they were happy with its implementation, which is the Bundesliga. The players said they did not want to see the project continue. Also, if you look at IFAB, which is the, the body that sets up football's laws, own study of the experiments on, on VAR so far, what they admit that they cannot get all correct all decisions correct and they also say that the increase in correct decisions in their study was 5.9 percent which is not much now do we want to take on all the problems we've seen and even if we refine the system and get it working in in a better way do we want to do we want to mess around with football and the flow of the game and the fact that a referee has to make a decision and has to be responsible for decisions on the p- pitch, instead of referring to someone in a in a studio elsewhere for f- for a five point nine percent improvement in accuracy. I don't. I'd rather see the football referee the way it has been for um, for se- for over a century with all a, its um, intrinsic problems. But a, a faster flowing
2: game. Ian, you got to comment on in that? No, I agree with Duncan on that. <clears throat> I think um, I don't think we will see enough. Of VAR uh, to persuade me, and and I think the majority of people um, who have been at games or have seen games on television where VR has been used to convince us that it is uh, worth it. Basically, I think the the percentage rise that Duncan referred to is um, is kind of condemning VAR, uh, and, and certainly a lot of the players that I've spoken to personally who've been involved in games VR. Uh, would agree that the, it's the game is not better off for it, and they would prefer not to be the case. Um, however, <clears throat> the point that Duncan made about how we're all VARs—it's true. Everyone loves a contentious decision, loves to argue with your mates and you know your misses about was that offside or was that a goal or whatever. <clears throat> that that kind of, in a way, promotes VAR because it's allegedly supposed to take away the element of chance and the element of human error. But what we've seen is, instead, it's, it's not actually done that. There are VAR decisions that said that I've got, got things wrong. Okay, there's some that have got things right. But the um, interruption that it's caused to matches so far, I don't think can be justified. Um, in general terms, I'm, I'm in agreement with progress and technology being used. If it's can be proven to enhance uh, a game or to better apply the, the laws and the rules of the game, and I mean that across all sports, but at the moment... We just haven't got it right. And until we get it right, it should not be used. And so I would predict, and let's talk about this in August, that this summer's World Cup, there will be games which will be turned into absolute fiascos through VAR.
0: That Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens in the summer. But I suppose it's going to be on a massive global scale with it being at the World Cup. So... Fingers crossed that they get it ironed out before then. Moving on to our legendary quickfire round. Legendary, because it's often not very quickfire, but... <laughs> <laughs> that indeed is its legend, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've obviously got a huge game at Old Trafford, Manchester United uh, against Liverpool at the weekend. So what we're going to do is a combined 11. We're going to start with you, Duncan, with the goalkeeper position. We're going to go with a 4-3-3, because that's what both the teams have been playing recently. So, Duncan, goalkeeper, who would you go with? Uh, David De Gea. Ian, left back? Uh, uh, <clears throat> Andy Robertson. Right back, Duncan? Uh,
1: I think Antonio Valencia is still the better of the right backs available. Uh, left centre back? Virgil van Dijk for me. Right centre back? Someone who hasn't played much recently, but Eric Bailly is um, clearly uh, a top Premier League defender.
2: Is he, is he fit, Duncan, do we think?
1: He's training again, but they're <clears throat> obviously um, using they're being very
2: careful about reintroducing him to the action. Could, could be used at the weekend
0: central defensive midfield
2: I don't think there's any contest here Johnny. I think Nemanja Matic is, is not only the man in possession but the man who will be for some time in terms of uh, his, his game left
0: central midfield Duncan
1: it uh, has to be Paul Pogba it's the, it's the position of his dreams so we'll have to field him there and see how he does in a combined Liverpool-Man United 11
0: and right centre midfield
2: Well, you gents know and of course all our uh, subscribers know that um, I try to steer away from controversy when it comes to midfielders. I always like to just go with the obvious choice. So in this case, I'm going to go for James Milner. Uh, I say James Milner, I know people might have a little chuckle about that, but I'm a massive fan of James Milner. He does not waste possession. He's incredibly intelligent, reads the game really well, can play anywhere as we've seen. He's played left back, right back, right wing, left wing, central midfield. I just think he's very underrated. And I think, you know, in a game like this, where possession and retaining possession and also defending counter-attacks is going to be crucial, I think Milner is, is you know, he'd be your man. And I wouldn't be surprised if Klopp put him in either. Left wing, Duncan? Yeah, that's a
1: difficult one. There's a lot of uh, competition for that position. Um, you've, you know, you've had Anthony Martial and Sadio Mane both being up and down, being excellent at periods during the season. Um, Obviously, Alexis Sanchez would expect to be picked there. But I think on current form, you'd have to go for Sadio Mane.
0: Hey, sorry, on the right, Ian.
2: Well, to be honest, Johnny, I, I don't see beyond Liverpool's front three right now. I don't think anyone in the Premier League would. So Mo Salah, top scorer in the Premier League, um, been sensational. His pace, his finishing, his accuracy, just gels. And that, for me, Salah would have to be on, on that, that, that side of the field.
0: And finally, Duncan, finishing us off with the centre-forward.
2: Yeah,
1: I'd I'd pick Lukaku as the centre-forward. I'm not a huge fan of Firmino. I think Lukaku is a more natural centre-forward. I think the key with Lukaku is he's such a confidence player. He's so... The mentality is important to him. Um, He kind of beats himself up. But when he's on his game, as as we saw um, against Chelsea last week, um, he is... Better than Firmino as a centre forward and to put him in that lineup. Uh, on his, on his, in his current state of mind, I think he's the best of the the two.
0: Okay, very strong lineup there. Ian, how do you th- see this game going on for the weekend?
2: Uh, it'll be very interesting because of um, the game that that was played out at Anfield early in the season, and obviously we had crimes against football, didn't we? Res- uh, uh, accused that Jose Mourinho for the way that uh, he put his team out. Um, I think of a different approach from Manchester United. They are in need of securing that top four spot, the same as Liverpool are. Liverpool are, at the moment, probably the most informed team outside of Manchester City in the Premier League. Uh, certainly as free scoring as well, um, I would expect Klopp to be less adventurous um, in the way he puts his team out. But at the same time, I would also expect him to play that the, the front three of Mane, Firmino and Salah, And given that Manchester United, as we saw against Crystal Palace on Monday night, um, are defensively fragile, I think we'll see goals. But I suspect that Manchester United might edge it by one goal.
1: I think it'll be a fascinating game. Um, I I don't know how Mourinho will approach it. I've not talked to guys near him to discuss the game. Um, I think we forget that in the initial game they played at Anfield, Klopp, played quite conservatively. Um, he had his midfield doing a lot of defensive work and that was actually, if you remember, Mourinho's complaint after the match was he was waiting for uh, Klopp to change his system and open up a bit more. So he had, a, had the opportunity to attack him later in the game, which is something he often does in matches. He saves attacking players to the moment when he feels the, the opposition is more open and tired. Um, he's obviously ahead of them in the league at the moment, Um a point would probably be acceptable result for him. So you'd expect him to, to play relatively cautiously because of that. However, he likes to throw surprises in, in these games, so maybe he'll, he'll deploy a different system and maybe he will uh, go after Liverpool at the start see if he can get an early goal and make him come on to Manchester United, um, which I think if he does manage to do, he'd, he'd very much want to bet on Manchester United to win that game, picking Liverpool off on the break.
0: Okay, gentlemen, I'm going to bring this particular transfer window to a close. Um, if you want to continue the debate, folks, you can. We're on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, Duncan's at Duncan Castles, and Ian is at Garbo SJ. If you want the podcast as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at iTunes, Audioboom Boom, or any other good podcasting network. Please review and rate us on there too as the more reviews we get, the more people are able to pick us up and find us and listen to us. In the meantime, until next week, thanks for listening.